Well, good morning. A beautiful spring morning. It's amazing how our emotions can be altered by just a mere point, isn't it, really? Oh, obviously not a, not a congregation who loves rugby union, um, but that's okay. You can confess your sin later, it's all right. <laughs> well, sin of pride and arrogance, you know, that's oh, okay. Right, we're going to get ready for Titus heading in, so just uh, bear with me a sec. Okay, as you know, we are starting a series in Titus. We started last week uh, in, a, in the introduction uh, part of the book, the first four verses. We didn't quite finish that last week, so we're going to uh, just quickly finish that and then get into the next section of the book. And uh, before we do, let's just pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you that we can open your word freely. Father, we thank you that your word is all-powerful. It's for our instruction. Father, we pray this morning as your people that by your spirit you will convict us in the areas that need conviction. Father, you will align our will with yours. And Father, as we just uh, take time to look at your powerful written word, we pray that you'll impact our hearts to action. Father, we acknowledge at times it's easy to be intellectual about your word. It's easy just to know things. But Father, your word teaches us that to know things is to put it in practice. Father, we pray that you'll continue to shape us by your spirit. You'll continue to sanctify us. You'll continue to move us in godliness towards perfection. And we just pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Oh, okay. Sorry, I just need to redo this. It was at the last slide, not the first. Okay, let's read together. Let's read uh, Titus, uh, the first four verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Remember last week we managed to get our way through the first verse. We, we looked at uh, Paul and the way he titled himself. He titled himself as a servant of God or probably better termed a slave of God. It's a far better term. Doulos is the word that is used there. And to be a slave of somebody, you're totally owned by that person, body and soul. 
you remember in the Old Testament, actually, if you were a slave, that at some point in time in your slavery when you were set free, you had an option. You could go back to your master and they'd pierce your ear and you would be considered a slave for life. And that's a similar sort of feeling here that Paul is saying, I am a slave of God. I lay down all for him, body and soul. So that's his first title. His second title is, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. We briefly talked about what an apostle was. We um, said, you know, firstly, an apostle is someone that's directly appointed by God. We saw that with Paul in Galatians as we did that uh, several weeks ago, that his apostleship, his right to be called an apostle was God-appointed. Very clear on that. Secondly, it was an eyewitness of Jesus. To be an apostle, you needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul outlined that in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, he even said, look, I was an apostle born out of time because I didn't see the resurrection of Jesus as the other disciples and apostles did, but Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he appeared to me in his resurrected form, so... That was part of the apostleship. Something we didn't spend a lot of time on, but it's really important when you think about an apostle. An apostle was a a foundation plate of the church, if you like. You read in Ephesians these three things, that the apostle and the prophets are the foundation stone with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And... uh, that's significant. So as an apostle, they were found foundational in doctrine, foundational in the birth of the church, which we read about in the New Testament books we have. And they were first in leadership and authority. And of course, Paul had a special designation as apostle in that he had a charge to go to Gentiles, to minister to Gentiles. You read that in Romans. Romans chapter 1 is wonderful when he just he just talks openly about this. Paul, a servant, once again, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God to the Gentiles. So that was his primary purpose as and in his titles. And then we have, what is Paul's purpose in writing to Titus? He starts off by saying, I'm writing to you for the sake of God's elect. And we talked about what divine election looks like and we we looked at uh, that term. And uh, why? So that those who've had their faith and trust in Christ, those who are God's, would one, increase in their knowledge of truth, but two, that knowledge of that truth would accord to godliness. So that's what he's driving. He's saying, I'm I'm writing to you, I'm giving you this greeting of my heart for you, Titus specifically, saints generally, is that I want you to know about Jesus. I want you to understand the gospel and the saving power of the grace of God. And I want that to transform and change your life. I want to see the fruit of godliness being being developed in your life as you wrestle with the beauty of Jesus and who he is. 
That was last week in 30 seconds. And we've come to this juncture where the sentence continues. Notice that from uh, verse 1, 1 through to the end of verse 4 is all one sentence. Many thoughts in one sentence, and it's rich and deep. So he, he further carries on. So, okay, to, to understand this, this, this transformation about knowing Jesus and about being, being shaped in godliness, I'm just going to give you a lot of, another few proof statements. So what Paul does, he says, okay, this creates great hope. And hope of eternal life. This is where godliness ends. This is the end destination. If you put your faith and trust in Christ and your knowledge grows in the truth of who he is and you walk a life according to his spirit, then that provides a hope. A deep, wonderful hope of a life beyond this earth and its troubles and trials. It's a deep, wonderful hope which is eternal in nature. And it is certain and secure. How do we know it's certain and secure? The next phrases tell us. Because it's certain and secure because it's based on God's character. We often talk about God's character. You know, God is truthful. God is all-knowing, omniscient. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. He is everywhere. What Paul focuses here is on another one of his character traits called he's immutable, which means basically he does not lie. He states this. This eternal life, this hope of this eternal life is sure and and certain because God does not lie. And he never lies. And by the way, his plan started before creation. So God does not lie and he has a plan. So therefore, your hope of eternal life is based on those two characteristics of God. Firstly, he is 100% truthful does not change, does not lie. And secondly, he has a plan. And redemption's plan didn't start at the fall. The plan of redemption didn't start in Genesis 3.15 when man sinned. That's not what this teaches. Man's sin did not take God by surprise. He didn't have to have plan B. And this verse shows us this. Plan A is the fact that he has promised this eternal life, this hope, this redemption, before when? Before ages began. Isn't that wonderful news? God's purpose and power to redeem you and I was beyond time and space and before this place was even created. It was in his eternal purpose. 
way, 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 way back beyond time. That makes my heart rejoice. If you're facing troubles in your life, if you're facing trials and things that weigh us down, dwell on this. Dwell on the fact that your hope is based on an unchangeable God who not only does not lie and is perfect in what he says, but also has planned your salvation from before time. That's grace. That's something that transcends our understanding. Does it not? We are fixed by our own function of time. But God's plan is beyond that. And he continues. He continues and he says, Paul says, I'm part of God's plan also. Because at the proper time, God manifests in his word to me through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. So Paul just makes a statement that this wonderful plan of redemption, I've had a special part in that because I've been entrusted with that gospel to proclaim to the Gentiles. God in his time chose to manifest the the gospel to Paul. And he's saying, now I'm preaching this wholeheartedly. I'm preaching it because God has laid this command on my heart to proclaim Christ. That's interesting there too, isn't it, as you read that verse there. The phrase at the end of uh, verse 3, how is God titled? As our Saviour. If you want to start wrestling with Trinitarian theology, you can start here. God is identified as our Saviour. Just as in the next verse, Christ Jesus is identified as our Saviour. So you have a challenge here. Paul had a challenge to go and preach the gospel. That was his calling. What's your calling? As a follower of Christ? What way has God gifted you? Clearly God gifted Paul as an apostle, as a preacher of the word. And he was using those gifts to glorify God in his process. What's God called you to do? Be a faithful mum and dad to consistently teach the truth of God's word to your kids. Be a faithful grandparent perhaps to love your family and to display the love of Christ. Maybe you're a gifted evangelist. Maybe you just have in your heart to share with whoever comes across your door 
the love of Jesus. Maybe you're gifted in hospitality and you just grab people and gather yourself around people so you can share the love of Jesus. What's God calling you to be faithful to? Paul was faithful to his gifts. What's God calling you to be faithful to? I can't answer that question. You have to answer that yourself. But be challenged by it. And then we finally get to the recipient. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. So what do we know about Titus? We don't read a lot about Titus in the New Testament. So let's just do a brief overview of who Titus was and what he was doing. We read about Titus on about nine occasions throughout the New Testament. Remember uh, when we were doing our studies in Galatians, we came across Titus. Uh, Paul went up to Jerusalem. Read it in Galatians 2. He went up to Jerusalem and he, uh, he took Titus with him. And he took him for a very particular purpose because people were having a go at Paul about circumcision. So he took Titus with him, who was a Greek, and said, well, not even, not even Titus has been obliged to be circumcised, but he is and has faith in Christ. So Paul used him as a bit of an example in that debate with the, the elders up in, in Jerusalem. Uh, we also see that uh, Paul uh, and Titus were fellow partners uh, with the work amongst the Corinthians. So if you were to look at uh, perhaps 2 Corinthians chapters 7 and 8, you'll see quite often Titus's name coming up. Uh, he uh, undertook several difficult assignments uh, for Paul in Corinth, uh, including a collection. And anyone who knows anything about trying to get money out of people, that's a difficult assignment. All right, so uh, he was he was in charge of that. And um, from this letter, as we'll read shortly in verse five, we see that Paul accompanied Titus to Crete. And we'll talk about that shortly and help organize the work there. And it's interesting because um, as we read the two books of Second Timothy and Titus, which remember we talked about last week, they're all part of the pastorals, we see that um, Titus left Crete to go and meet Paul and, and Dalmatia, and we get that in Second Timothy, and then possibly went back to Crete. So he was actively involved with Paul's ministry. And that's about all we know about Titus. But we do know he loved the Lord and he was charged with some certain responsibilities in the birth of the churches in Crete. So let's read. Ah, all right. Sorry. It's interesting because um, 
Whenever you see somebody from a different country or from a different, uh, I guess, employment situation, you see certain marks, don't you, about where they may, may be from. Traditionally, if you're from New Zealand, you might see a tattoo around the arm, a Maori tattoo, a, a, a nice-looking tattoo. Uh, if you drive around the streets of Melbourne, you often see orange vests and yellow vests. You see a plethora of tradies everywhere, cutting you off, driving quickly, tailgating, getting from one job to the next. So traditionally when you see an orange or a, a, a yellow vest, uh, you know immediately, oh, that's a tradie. You don't know whether it's a, a plumber or electrician or a builder. But, you know, they're a tradie. There's a general classification and mark. Um, it's a bit similar to this um, sort of far side uh, comic strip, which I came across the other day. And, uh, yeah, clearly hunting season is about to start. And uh, poor old um, Hal is going to have some problems because he's, uh, he's marked by a mark which is going to be conducive to his end, I would think. In a similar way, what uh, Paul does with Titus, he says, I'm leaving you in Crete for a purpose, and one of the primary purposes, and we'll read it, is this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on and he lists a set of qualifications, a set of vices and a set of virtues, I will call them. The vices are, as you look for different marks in different men, this is what you should not look for. But as you look for marks of an elder, this is what you should look for. Very much like poor old Hal in the comic strip. As you look for elders and leaders of churches, it should be pretty self-explanatory that those folks are aligned a certain way. And so that's what Paul asks Titus to do. Now, in no way does the word appoint here have any uh, form of religious or clerical connotations. All right, it's a common word that was used at the time. It's a common word used to appoint uh, officials, governors, anyone in a sort of an official position, a judge, etc. Some folks and some scholars have tried to uh, translate this as ordain uh, elders, etc. That's not a good translation. It's just a common word. There's other words that would be used if it was an ordination process. So Paul is reminding 
Titus, I just want you to appoint. I just want you to pass over this position of eldership for church growth. Clearly, uh, Paul had verbally said this to Titus at some point in time. As this verse tells us that, you know, as I've directed you, I've already talked to you about this, Titus. And he's, he's sort of giving him a, a little tap on the shoulder. Titus, go to every town and do this. I want you to go in every city inside Crete and, and appoint elders. It's important that there's spiritual direction in the church. And then he outlines some qualifications. So we're briefly going to go through these and just um, pull them apart a little bit. Verse 6, I think, uh, looks at marriage and family qualifications of an elder. If anyone uh, is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's verse 6. So I want you to look for men who are in this state. They the husband of one wife. Uh, it, this here in the, in the deep root of the word is indicating a marital and sexual fidelity are required for a potential elder. We've heard the term one woman man and that, that would go well. Does it mean that uh, single men can't be elders? No. The same character trait of a one-woman man and being uh, pure in your thought life, being pure in your outlook on life. That's the character trait that's being looked at here. And um, yeah, it's, I think it it stands for itself. The husband of one wife has a a connotation there that the potential elder is free from any damaging moral or spiritual accusations. That's the standard. And, and you'll notice as we read these verses, and we'll just read them all together here, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And here are the, the five vices. Actually, before we do that, we'll just... Right, let's go back. Because as the marriage and family qualifications go, there's two aspects to that. She said, okay, you've got to be a one-woman man. But secondly, you've got to have faithful children. Now, I think that's a better translation than believing children. The word in the original is called pistos, which is faith or faithfulness. In here, it's in a, what they call in the passive tense, which really has the aspect of having your children being respectful, obedient, and lawless. 
because you have a clause here that goes, that helps with that because it says, and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. So you have a contrast statement going on. To be an elder, to be a good man of God with your family. I want to just move this beyond just eldership. These should be great qualifications for men who want to bring their families up as well. The children aren't to be disrespectful or full of debauchery and insubordination. That's the contrast statement as opposed to faithful. 1 Timothy 3 also helps with this. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 has another list of qualifications for eldership. And 1 Timothy 3 speaks of an overseer having his children under control with all dignity. And I think that's the sense which Paul is using here. The faithfulness is a sense of submissive or obedience as a servant or a steward. I just want to make a a comment here. This is a personal comment. Some people interpret this verse here to say that to be a qualified elder, you must have believing Christian children. Folks, that places an impossible burden upon a father. You say, what do you mean? Even the best Christian father cannot guarantee that their children will believe. We may have the principles to bring up our children in a godly way. But you and I as fathers and mothers, we cannot guarantee our children's salvation. That's God's work and God's work alone. Salvation is a supernatural act of God, a supernatural act of God. God not good parents ultimately bring salvation. However, good Christian parenting should always be pointing that child to Christ. As parents, we should always be pointing our children to Christ. So an elder must be above reproach in relation to his sexual fidelity and his purity. And if he has children, those children must be faithful and obedient, not rebellious or given to debauchery. And also it doesn't disqualify anyone who doesn't have children. It's only if you have children. And then he moves on to these vices. And we'll just, the vices are pretty self explanatory. There's five of them arrogant and self willed, quick tempered, drunkard, addicted to wine, violent, greedy for gain, fond of sorrowed gain. I 
question I'd have for you if, is, if you had leaders in this church who displayed these characteristics, would you be happy with that? It's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Paul was pretty cut down the line here. And I like that. And you know, as you reflect on these vices, what does arrogance and self-willed mean? Well, it means being opposite to gentle. It means being opposite to what the fruit of the Spirit is. To be a self-willed man, you want your own way. To be a self-willed man, you are headstrong. You're independent, you're self-assertive, and you're ungracious, especially towards those with a different opinion. A self-willed man is not a team player. It is to note here, as uh, when Paul says to, to uh, Timothy, his true child in the common faith, that um, I want you to appoint elders, it's plural. So it shows you that there's got to be a team of men to run the church. So that's where he goes with that. And they're not to be self-willed, not to be quick-tempered. One of God's attributes is what? Slow to anger, abounding in mercy. So elders must also be slow to anger. Not addicted to anything. It mentions wine here because that was the common addiction of the day, I guess, but it's addicted to anything. What does it mean to be addicted? It means that something else sits in your heart as an idol that you, you worship and you, you want to <laughs> pay homage to that daily so you get involved with it. Whether it's pornography, whether it's wine, whether it's booze, whether it's uh, drugs. It just says clearly, don't be addicted to anything. Don't be violent. And don't be greedy for gain. This is really kind of an interesting term. It, it means um, greedy for money, and it has the sense that we're, you have plenty, but you still want, want what you have. So it's a greed principle that's going on here. So he lists these five vices and he singles out a way in which one may be gripped and controlled by the different sins of self-pride, anger, the desire of drink, dominance, or wealth. Being controlled by any of these disqualifies a man from the position of overseer, one who leads others by serving as God's steward. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There's that word again. Notice how there's a little bracket here between above reproach in verse 6 and above reproach at the start of verse 7. It's a clear indication that this is a, a key characteristic. Above reproach, NIV says blameless. And he then starts saying, as a steward of God's house. And I just want to spend just a, a brief moment talking about that. Because as a steward of God's household, it is a pretty important position. It's a wonderful position to be in. And primarily when you're a steward of something, now who here watches Downtown Abbey? Put your hands up high. You've got to be proud of us. Who watches Downtown Abbey? 
Come on, blokes, don't be. Look, look, Ken Brooks, I think you watch Downtown Abbey. <laughs> okay. When you watch Downtown Abbey, who's your favourite character outside Carson? <laughs> He's just fabulous, isn't he? He sits there and he, he controls the manor. So to me, if you haven't watched it, don't bore yourself with it, but if you, if you, have, if, if you have watched it, he is a steward of the household. He manages the household. Does he own the household? No. In the same way, an elder is a steward of whose household? God's household. Does an elder own the church? No. He's entrusted as a manager or as a steward of God's people, as a shepherd of the household. And that's important to remember because elders need to understand that the stewardship is an imagery that are so simple but so profound. Since an elder is God's household steward, he must be morally and spiritually above reproach in an ordinary household, the most trusty servant was chosen as steward and the same rule must apply to the household of God. The elder is clearly considered to be God's servant. He is to do God's work and is clearly accountable to God for his performance. And notice the progression here. He starts with an elder in his own household being above reproach in his marital relationship and with his children. And then he moves to, if you've managed that well, you'll now manage God's house well. So what are the seven characteristics, seven virtues? Hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled and sensible, upright, holy and disciplined. These are all aspects which we could spend many minutes on discussing. But the final one I just want to pay heed to as we conclude. All these actually, when you look at them, are opposite to the five that we've just gone through. But the final one is a real anchor point in this letter. If you're appointing elders, they must be men who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So remember the situation. In Crete, they did not have the entire New Testament. In Crete, all they had was three chapters of the New Testament. I'm not even sure how many words that is. And they just received it. Their tradition was that the gospel message was proclaimed how? Word of mouth, orally. People preached it. So he's saying, hold, hold firmly to a trustworthy word as taught. So Titus, your elders must understand that the apostles' doctrine and what we have taught is 
the gospel. Hold to that. Why? So you may give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. There's two aspects to holding fast to sound doctrine, according to Paul to Titus here. The first one is to exhort, give instruction, exhort, encourage one another, and to rebuke. They're the the double-edged sword of sound doctrine. And that's what he's charging to do. And as it unfolds through the rest of the letter, you'll see this tension going on. Exhort, rebuke, exhort, rebuke, exhort, rebuke. Why? So that you may grow in your knowledge of truth so that you will be more godly in what you do. So what are we to do with this? Because uh, we have a list of characteristics and virtues and vices. They are particularly for leaders of the church. What about you and I who are not leaders? They're just as applicable. I'd want you this week to have a look at these seven virtues. Write them down. And ask the Lord to give you his grace to work in your life these attributes. Especially the ones that you can identify you're not that good at. (laughs) It's hospitality, if it's lover of good, if it's being self-controlled and sensible, it's about making right and wise decisions. But it's being upright, standing for truth in whatever situation you're in. Whether it's been holy, whether it's been disciplined, whether it's understanding and giving instruction based on God's truth. These are all things we can work on and be encouraged by. And remember, get the Spirit of God to work in your hearts to help develop these things. It's not a list of legalism and a list of, I want, I need to do, 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 do. These things are developed by the Spirit of God. Cry out to Him. Lord, sh- cry out to Him and say, Lord, show me how to be hospitable. Show me how to be a lover of good. How to be upright. How to be holy. How to be disciplined. How to teach the truth. Another thing too, encourage your leaders. Encourage the leaders that God has placed here at Canterbury Gardens who God has entrusted to serve you as shepherds. It's great to get encouragement. And uh, it's great to celebrate together what God is doing in the life of his body. I'll invite the music team up and uh, we'll close. Thanks.